You are listening to America's Healthcare Challenge with Sean McGuire. Join the conversation at 402-342-1290 or at 800-577-1290. Once again, direct from the American heartland, here's your host, Sean McGuire. Welcome back to the program. Joining us here on America's Healthcare Challenge, an architect of the ACA here on the program, John McDonough. Talk to us a little bit about uh, your background. Just in terms of what's relevant, so I spent 13 years as a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives between 1985 and 1997. I was deeply involved in a whole host of health policy things, including the unsuccessful Dukakis Universal Health Care Law in 1988 and a lot of other things. Uh, between 2003-2008, I was the executive director of Health Care for All in Massachusetts, our state's leading consumer advocacy organization, and I was right in the middle of the whole health reform process that led to the passage of Massachusetts Health Reform in 2006. And then between 2008 and 2010, I worked in D.C. On the staff, as a staffer on the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, which is one of the two uh, Senate committees that was centrally involved in writing of the Affordable Care Act. So I was in the middle of uh, the Massachusetts Health Reform Law and uh, the Affordable Care Act. May you saw the sausage being made in both places, huh? If you will. Uh, I feel very fortunate. <laughs> so could you please help our listeners uh, understand some of the differences between the Affordable Care Act and the Massachusetts plan? Well, so the way I like to tell it is this. So if you ever have the opportunity, uh, type into a Google search, Affordable Care Act text, and look at the first 15 pages of the Affordable Care Act, which is the table of contents. It's a little intimidating, but just get the essential structure. The Affordable Care Act has 10 titles or 10 major chapters, just like a book has titles, a federal law has, a book has chapters, a federal law has titles. The first title is all about private health insurance in the United States. Most of what you've heard about the Affordable Care Act, the individual mandate, the subsidies, the elimination of pre-existing conditions, the exchanges, it's all in Title I. Title I is absolutely based on the conceptual model of Massachusetts health reform. So Massachusetts health reform deeply informed Title I of the ACA. But then there are eight more substantive titles, Titles two through nine, and those have nothing to do with what we did in Massachusetts. Right. So yeah. we were deeply informative of the private health insurance expansions in the Affordable Care Act and pretty much nothing else. And there's so much more in the ACA that Massachusetts never attempted or even thought about doing. Right, right. It's, it's, and many people don't understand how it's sweeping health care reform changes in many ways uh, in those other titles. And um, can I ask you a question? When you guys were you know, navigating it through the process, did you guys uh, foresee some of these challenges, uh, particularly on the IT side, or were you anticipating that states would do it? Well, um, you mean in, in, in writing the ACA? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I mean, you know, we had the model of the Massachusetts Health Reform. We had the Massachusetts Health Connector, which was doing the essential job that we envisioned uh, an exchange website would do. And uh, we knew it would be many, many times more complicated. But, you know, the truth is we got the Massachusetts website up and running in about six months. Now, it was a 
far simpler job than all of the pieces. We never anticipated, by the way, that there would be a federal exchange that would be covering about uh, 35 of the states. So, um, so the challenges are just so much more greater, but there was about a three-and-a-half-year lead time in the ACA between the passage of the law and when the website had to be up. So I, we, we never anticipated these difficulties, and this is surprising and quite disappointing. How, would, how much would you attribute it to, to politics from both sides? Well, I think that plays a piece. I think there was uh, reticence by the Obama administration in um, getting too far out ahead before the 2012 elections because everything that came out became a political controversy, and there was a hope that after the election that things would quiet down somewhat. And so it was, uh, it was delayed more than it should have been in terms of some of the regulations and some of the other requirements. Um, you know, on the other hand, they had a lot of time to work on this behind the scenes, and so it is. Um, so it's surprising and very disappointing. So, where do you think we go from here as a nation? Well, I think it is of fundamental importance that the Obama administration is able to deliver on its commitment to having the website ready and fully operational by the end of November. Uh, if it goes much deeper beyond that, uh, we get into a cascade of significant problems, which is why I think that they will be pretty well done, um, and it will be a continuous process, and there'll be much more to be done, but I'm, I'm very hopeful that the essential components of the website will be functioning by the end of this month. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. If we can't get this handled for the listeners at home, I mean, we can't, um, particularly if, if the younger, healthier people aren't able to enroll and I know being a millennial, it's tough for, to convince somebody to go to a website twice if it doesn't work properly. Uh, but that's kind of how all this, uh, everything's hinged on getting these, you know, what was it, 7 million people they're saying needed to be enrolled this first year for the numbers to work? That's their estimate. I, I don't hold a lot of weight on any particular number. Uh -huh. um, this is not a sprint. This is not a, a, a Jeopardy game where you have to, reach a certain level and who gets the higher number. Um, this is a process, and it takes time. And there are great advances, and there are difficulties that get encountered along the way. Um, and I'm, I'm not fixated on, oh, my God, they got to get to one number, or they're facing a big problem. I, I think it's more elastic and durable than that. We're talking with John McDonough. Professor at Harvard University, one of the key people getting the Affordable Care Act uh, through Congress and very influential still in the debate. Uh, John Radhouse, my co-host, has a question for you, sir. Yeah. Hey, John, thanks for joining us. Um, I guess you we were talking about the numbers and the enrollment. I, I'd be curious to hear your take on, you know, how the Massachusetts numbers first kind of trickled in and how the, the numbers are trickling in with the Affordable Care Act and just kind of how you see how that naturally happens if people kind of more people tag along in the middle and then even more people get in in the end. And then my other question is kind of, do you think that the a lot of the public reaction from the country is appropriate, or do you feel like people really aren't giving this enough time to work yet? So um, Massachusetts kind of was able to jackrabbit out of the starting gate by bringing in about 50,000 people into the reform who didn't have to pay any premium and who were previously kind of known users of the state's hospital uncompensated care pool. 
And so that went fast right away out of the gate. The people who paid premiums, it went slowly, and it took a while, and it built over time, and it particularly built as we got closer and closer to the deadline when the uh, penalties for the individual mandate became effective. Um, and, uh, and it did start out early on that the people who came in were older and less healthy, and it was later on that the younger, healthier people started to come in. Um, it's important to understand that there are a series of devices built into Title I of the ACA to help through this transition. There's something called reinsurance, where insurers save the cost, uh, share the cost if they end up getting ex an exceptionally high number of higher-cost patients. Um, there is something called risk corridors, where if their costs go above a certain level, then they get uh, federal support to pay for those higher costs. And if their costs go significantly below a certain level, then they have to pay some money in. So there's a series of structures that are put in place, and I'm only mentioning two of them, that are designed to guard against any problems uh, with uh, a significant adverse selection in the first three years of the program. So it really is going to be a three-year experiment, essentially. I would say, I, for me, I mean, I would say by the third year, we will have a good sense of how this is going to plateau and where it's going to stay. And then after the, after the first three years, we'll start to see the, um, we'll, start to, we'll, we'll start to see it reaching some kind of an of a equilibrium. Um, and, and, and the third year is, by the way, is when the full, the full sense of the, uh, of the individual mandate or the individual responsibility payments kick in. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I just, you know, I heard the other day on, on that Morning Joe sh show on MSNBC, you know, Joe Scarborough saying, well, the penalty's only $95, so what's that? Why is that such a big deal? Well, the penalty's not $95. No. The penalty in the first year is $95 or 1% of your household income, whichever is higher. Right. And then it goes up to about $295 or 2%, and then it ends, it stays at the third year at $695 or 3% or 3 whichever is higher. So the, 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 and, and, and the important thing to understand, and, and young people sure get this, you, know, you can pay the penalty, and people do that in Massachusetts, and, they don't, uh, and, and they're not breaking the law, they're in compliance with the law. But you pay that penalty, and you get nothing for it. And if you go to the website and you look at your choices, even if you buy like a bronze or a young adult plan that leaves you exposed on the low end to some significant cost sharing, you got yourself some very decent coverage if you have a serious expensive medical emergency. And, and, and for a lot of folks, the cost of that kind of policy is actually going to be less than the penalty particularly in the third year and beyond. So, so I, you know, I, I, don't, um, I don't foresee the problems in terms of this process over the next three years, and I think we've got to have some patience to let this thing go. We've waited 100 years to get to this point. January 1st is a fundamentally important date in the history of health care in the United States because on January 1st, the insurance laws change, so that they can no longer exclude people 
for pre-existing conditions. The subsidies and the cost-sharing protections kick in. The Medicaid expansion starts in the states that adopt it. And the individual responsibility requirements take effect. So I, I don't think people fully appreciate the fundamental departure that the nation will take when we get to 12 a.m. on uh, January 1st.